Himalayas Studios. You know, I I don't remember if it was you I've had this conversation with, but I, I thought of it at some point. I think it's my idea. Who knows? Who cares? That cereal was the Hamilton of its time. <laughs> that It was sort of like just the way that everyone fell crazily in love with this thing they might not have expected. You know, plenty of people who were not into Broadway musicals became obsessed with Hamilton. It made people fall in love with it and just invest in it in a way that if it had just been like more people were listening to This American Life on their phones, it wouldn't have been quite the same thing. In 2014, the first episode of Serial was released. That first season, you might recall, revolved around the murder of Heyman Lee and her accused murderer and ex-boyfriend, Anand Syed. It would become one of the most successful and influential podcasts in the history of the medium. It's been a little more than six years since its debut, and so much has been said and written about the investigative podcast that changed the industry. But what kind of impact did it really have? From LA Studios, this is Servant a Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, looking back on the legacy of Cyril with the New Yorker's Sarah Larson. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. So, Sarah, what do you think is the first thing that people talk about when they talk about the first season of Zero? I think the excitement that everybody had that it was happening and how good it was and how fun it was. I mean, almost like the phenomenon itself was as exciting. People were thrilled by it and they were thrilled to be thrilled by it. And I think that that feeling carried with us for a long time. I was just looking at what I wrote about it, and I went into the studio the day it was coming out, and I I met with them, and I interviewed them, and I saw their maps and all that stuff, and I titled what I ended up writing about it, Serial, the podcast we've been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even remember what I had been writing about podcast-wise before Serial. I know I listened to podcasts, but... You know, it was like I was, it was presuming that we were all waiting for this amazing podcast and it had finally come. But I don't know. I mean, it just made everything explode into people's consciousness. 
And I think the excitement and the nostalgia of that podcast moment is kind of what its legacy is in a way. Do you remember what it was like listening to the show for the first time? I totally do. And it was so exciting. <laughs> I mean, I, I was house sitting at this beautiful apartment in Brooklyn Heights, this yeah. big sunny place. And I just remember sort of puttering around the apartment doing whatever the hell I was doing, cooking or something, and just being totally riveted by the sound of this podcast and the narrative itself and the way it was being told and it all felt so inclusive and kind of urgent and fun and sympathetic to its subjects and i mean not fun in a you know freewheeling way but it was compelling it 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 felt warm and yeah yeah what about you i actually don't remember like the first two episodes of over where I was. I do remember that I was like in a gym, like a Planet Fitness in Brooklyn somewhere, <laughs> and I was listening to it. I was like, "Holy shit! <laughs> like, what the hell is this?" <laughs> and uh, I was like working in a in a job I didn't particularly like at the time, and it was kind of a validating moment of like I had to sheepishly like kind of talk about podcasts before this moment, and that was the, sort of the first time when I went like, I think I can show this to somebody. And I would not have to explain myself. Um, And this would be somewhat self-evident. So I want to sort of start drawing the lines here of like what Cyril directly contributed, how it directly contributed the podcast world we have today. And I feel like the very first thing we have to start talking about is basically it is the ground zero of the true crime boom. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot, a lot, a lot of people, true crime podcasts are like the sort of default Mm -hmm. mood i think for a lot of just casual consumers right when you sort of listen to i don't know like a wondery show or something or like (laughs) or any of the of a a true crime podcast like do you hear that tradition kind of link back to serial absolutely absolutely i've been thinking about this so much you know when we went into listening to serial we brought with us the authority of this american life and the great journalism that they have been doing for be decades, you know, uh, knowing that we could just trust whatever this was going to be, and also that it would be entertaining. So we didn't really have to worry. And and of course, Sarah Koenig, you know, had been a journalist in Baltimore, and she had written about this defense attorney. And, you know, it came with a lot of authority. And then it was quite fun to be brought into the process of being a detective with those credentials, yeah. re-exploring this old case with very appealing um, protagonists and victims uh, and going into that world. So it automatically granted legitimacy to the idea of doing that, you know? Yeah. And so many podcasts, I don't need to tell you, that came after that did similar things, but did them very shoddily or did them in a sort of seat of the pants way but they were not journalists who had worked for this American life for decades. You know, they yeah. were just actually amateur detectives. And I always felt that podcasts that did that because of the prestige of serial in this American life kind of got some of the prestige of those shows because they were doing a similar thing, even if they were not that quality and were not made by people as skilled or as 
credentialed um, journalistically. Yeah. So to me, that's a that's a problem. And it's I wouldn't say that it's their fault, of course, but it certainly happened and it's still happening. <laughs> so essentially what you're saying is like the wrong lesson was taken. <laughs> actually, Several like, wrong lessons. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like the um, did he or she do it? Did he or she not do it? Question. Yeah. That sort of mania of pontificating and over-speculating about somebody's like guiltiness or innocence, mm-hmm. that is such a constant trope in many, many, many of the true crime shows that have come afterwards. I went back and listened, re-listened to the first three episodes over the weekend before taping this, and I am struck by how like the show is still very good. Like, yeah. <laughs> it is still miles away better, better written, better considered. And there are a couple of like really important critiques about it, um, mm-hmm. which are, I would argue, critiques that extend to most other single sort of investigative or true crime-esque narrative podcast that came after it. But it is shocking how it is still better than most things that come out today. I don't really know how to wrap my head around that. As to <laughs> What is it that you think makes it better? Part of it is, um, you know, simply how it sounds, right? Like this, this thing has a flow that's still pretty rare, I feel like. Like, I think like a lot of podcasts, particularly narrative ones, like they, yeah. you know, they don't really have a rhythm to them. The narration is still mechanical, like scripts are read, you know, not performed. And also, you know, the writing, like even listening back to it, it's still sensational. Like right from the first episode at the very beginning when Sarah Koenig asks, I want you to think about the way you remember things. You know, it's like a magic trick, like that immediately brings you into this puzzle. Before I get into why I've been doing this, I just want to point out something I'd never really thought about before I started working on this story. And that is, it's really hard to account for your time in a detailed way, I mean. How'd you get to work last Wednesday, for instance? Drive? Walk? Bike? Was it raining? Are you sure? Did you go to any stores that day? If so, what did you buy? Who did you talk to? The entire day, name every person you talked to. It's hard. Now imagine you have to account for a day that happened six weeks back, because that's the situation in the story I'm working on, in which a bunch of teenagers had to recall a day six weeks earlier. And it was 1999, so they had to do it without the benefit of texts or Facebook or Instagram. Just for a lark, I asked some teenagers to try it. Do you remember what you did on that Friday? No. Not not at all. I can't remember anything. (laughs) Wait, nothing? No, I can't remember anything that far back. It sort of makes you the detective along with her, or she's putting you in the sidecar of whatever she's doing. And it's kind of a fun place to be. And that's such a smart way to bring us in. Yeah, though, you know, as much as I like what they did right off the bat, um, I do think that one slightly annoying side effect of Cyril being the the breakthrough podcast is like this situation where... um, I think people assume prestige podcasts are, are supposed to sound exactly like this, right? Yeah, for sure. And and another thing that it did, I think, unintentionally at first was that it made the world safe for very in-depth narrative podcasts that don't have a conclusive ending. There were a lot of podcasts that came afterward that don't have a conclusive ending. I don't necessarily want to say what they are because if people haven't heard them, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a spoiler. <laughs> it's like a spoiler. Well, why don't you just get like two examples? <laughs> we get well, like West Cork. <laughs> right. Which is a great show. Um, from all Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, Last Scene, which, I mean, we all know that nobody has solved the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. But I feel like there have been more where the answer is just sort of about the mystery of life uh, and yeah. the nature of truth. 
And part of that is that when they started reporting this, um, I mean, the day that I visited them in the This American Life offices, I think they they felt very confident or pretty confident that they were close to figuring it all out. Yeah. And I don't know how things would be different if they had waited to release it until after they felt that they had done all the reporting. I get the feeling like it would have dulled yeah. what made the show interesting. Certainly other podcasts came out that were sort of reported on the fly and done as it, as we go. And there is that immediacy that, yeah. it, that it brings. Well, I mean, Missing Richard Simmons is the one that comes to mind, like mm-hmm. principally as, as the shooting from the hip style of running yeah. a narrative investigative piece almost. Investigative mm-hmm. is a pretty strong word there. Why am I doing this? Because that year I got to know Richard made me even more fascinated than I was when I first proposed that documentary. I think he's important, so much more so than his goofball public persona lets on. And also, because a lot of people who know him and whose lives have been changed by him, they're worried, or angry, or full of grief. Some want to save him. Some just want to know he's okay. So, over the course of this series, I'm looking for Richard. I'm reaching out in any way I can, and exploring every theory. The goal isn't to drag him back. It's to find out why someone like him would ditch the world. This is Missing Richard Simmons. <laughs> and Up and Vanished, which was much longer and, you know, very, very popular. And, and much more problematic. <laughs> much more problematic, yeah, and kind of all over the place, but then sort of got credit for solving this mystery, in part because they just stirred up so much stuff. Just so we're all on the same page, um, Up and Vanished is a true crime podcast hosted by Payne Lindsay, uh, who said he was directly inspired by Serial. Um, it's basically an archetype of what you think about when you think about a true crime podcast. You know, there, there's a cold case of a missing person, typically a woman, as it is in this case. Uh, and then you have this person, a documentarian, going out and trying to solve that cold case. You know, but it's been my understanding that there's some controversy, especially around the first season, about if the show actually did anything to solve cases, right? And and there's also some additional controversy around the show being pretty, you know, loosey-goosey with its accusations. They sort of rustled around in the bushes enough until things started falling out, but they weren't aware of those things. They, you know, so I don't think that's an ideal way to create a yeah. podcast. Do you feel like a lot of these newer shows, I'm thinking yeah, about Up and Vanish, but a bunch of other you know, Wondery Productions, um, a lot of true crime pieces that, and a lot of true crime shows that um, kind of, I feel like they're they're kind of like kid gloves sometimes. Like we're not going to, you know, criticize these shows largely because we have to take it as a given that they're kind of Discovery ID-esque, yeah. you know? I mean, we've criticized them. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I I remember when I first heard Dirty John and Dr. Death and so on, I was upset because I I did feel that, you know, whatever the strengths of those those shows, which definitely both have great strengths, um, they were beneficiaries of the serial kind of prestige, Hmm. even though they made some production choices that I thought were quite corny. Yeah. But to people who are just 
you know, the casual podcast fan, you know, it's like you finish one true crime and you start another and you don't necessarily. Yeah. Well, it's like candy at that point, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a lot of these, particularly wonder shows, but also a lot of the true crime shows in general are structured as, as sort of candy, like kinetic experiences almost. And in a way, I mean, I do blame Serial for some of this because I feel that they should have known. I don't think they could have known how big they would be. Yeah, I think that surprised everyone. But I, re- I do feel that since This American Life was such a powerful phenomenon already and had such a devoted listener base. Yeah. And they're so good at producing, you know, delicious audio. I, I think they should have known that this was going to be a big, important phenomenon, at least to some extent, and that with great power comes great responsibility. I don't know. (laughs) Coming up, what future podcasts learned from Serial and its biggest critique? The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. So before we get to what has emerged over the years as um, the principal critique made against serials for a season, uh, I want to bring up something you said to me, Sarah, about how the show was kind of a like a net good for the podcast industry in general. Yeah. Nate DeMeo, who makes the Memory Palace, told me this, that it sort of lifted all boats, that, that once all these new people started listening to podcasts, and also the technology was changing around then, right? So it was like people were listening to it in cars and on commutes, and it's, it exploded for a bunch of reasons that weren't entirely serial. But that these other legacy podcasts that had been doing such great work for a long time, like 99% Invisible and Memory Palace, you know, suddenly these lists started popping up, which you and I are quite familiar uh, with. Right, we're contributors and conspirators in this this industrial complex. So it was like people wanted more podcasts and people who had good podcasts that already existed that had been going on for a while got kind of some of the enthusiasm yeah that's that's a great part of its legacy so let's get to this critique the most striking one uh, at least in my opinion comes from the all which was this great you know gone but not forgotten independent publication the piece was called white reporter privilege uh, which argued that one of the things that made serial so effective 
is this situation where the narrative perspective comes from a journalist who's walking into this case and into these communities of color uh, and is just stumbling through trying to solve this mystery in a really human way, mm-hmm. which, you know, is the, is the thing that I really love about it. That's also a strong expression of the privilege that comes with whiteness, you know. So Sarah Koenig, who's white, uh, is uniquely able to tell the story in this way uh, because she's able to walk in with all the benefits and and protections that comes with her whiteness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and and that causes some clumsiness around race and culture and ethnicity. Um, It it affects the things that she focuses on. You know, and ultimately, you know, all all of those things leads to the situation where, I don't know, like as a listener of color, you know, one might have anxieties about whether this this white person's able to really read the context of the case correctly, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought about this piece a lot, um, and I feel like I've internalized it for years and years and years now. And, you know, I, I feel like I've ultimately ended up in a place where I don't meet the critique all the way um, because I don't think you know, those ne- differences in race and culture are necessarily, you know, determinative in a white reporter's ability to, like, read a situation. And also, like... If pressed, um, I still think she ended up closer to the truth than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To its credit on race, I think so many true crime stories, as we know, are about white women. Uh, sort of like it won't generate interest if it's not about, you know, a young white school teacher who disappeared one night, you know. And I do think part of the appeal was getting to know this incredibly cool, interesting community of smart AP kids in this town, some of them first generation Americans, very diverse, maybe not like the high school that we went to. I mean, a lot of high schools are not very diverse. They're, you know, as we learned in nice white parents, and perhaps in life, they tend to be somewhat segregated. And so even though, yeah, it was a white reporter going into this world of mostly non-white people, I'm glad that it was not about white people, you know, <laughs> that the that the show that kicked off all this stuff, you know, was about a different community. Um, maybe it should have had a Muslim reporter, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like, you know, there's also this like uneasiness because you could argue that there would not be a lot of Muslim reporters who would have, have had this opportunity, right? So that's always been what I understood to be the core structural critique with that first season. Yeah. That, yes, even though it's covering multiple communities of color, uh, it's still doing so from the vantage point of this white person looking in, you know, like a, as an interloper. Mm-hmm. So um, aside from like, you know, maybe having a reporter of color actively working on a story or something, what else would you have wanted from that first season of Serial? You know, it seemed like there were a few threads that weren't quite right. And that because it's the iconic podcast, and then it yeah. sort of became the iconic account of that story, I wish they had gotten it a little bit more right. Um, and I, I don't quite understand why they were so definitive about stopping when they stopped. And and they had those follow-up episodes. And those kind of stopped too. Yeah, I wish the first season had been kind of 10% more reported and more concluded and more, uh, you know, as accurate as possible. So I think one of the natural successors of Serial that really did that follow through was um, In the Dark, Uh, especially in that second season with Curtis Flowers. I mean, they covered his whole case until his release from prison, which was aided in large part by their reporting. 
That was incredible. Yeah. I I, I kind of see that as like a kind of one of the greater aspects of the legacy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like definitely. Do you do you generally do you like that kind of genre show uh, usually? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't even really know what the genre of in the dark is beyond in the dark because I I feel like they just did everything so well, including the first season, which was so beautifully done and just it really it dug into so many different phenomena. Um, you know rewards to the public for information and sheriff's departments and whether they communicate with one another and kind of from the the beginning it set out to be about the system more than about the mystery and the mystery happened to be solved you know it had a totally different relationship to the mystery than uh than serial did but it, it also had different aims um they were able to you know move to Curtis Flowers's town and just live among the locals and really get to know, you know, they were able to really do it justice and yeah. go into those musty, awful, you know, basements dripping with God knows what to look into moldy files. And uh, they really, they just reported it to the nth degree, yeah. kind of to an incredible effect. And we still don't know what happened at Tardy Furniture that day, but it's it's about the miscarriage of justice for Curtis Flowers. I mean, they certainly did a great job with reasonable doubt. Yeah. Which also, I have to say, Serial did. I feel like even though uh, it's been six years and there have been so many more shows that have made an impact since then, you know, Serial is still on this pedestal. Um, do you think it's worthy of that pedestal? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it brought together a whole bunch of phenomena that were waiting to be discovered and fully realized you know like the public's appetite for detail and for you know the idea even of serializing a story and stretching Which, it out over yeah, again has not been done was not done before that moment well it wasn't really done in enough. podcasts because podcasts were just figuring themselves right, out but right. i remember they had um when i went into their office they had this little piece of art that was sort of an old it was like an old film poster or an old pulp fiction kind of poster and i think that the font that they used for serial came from that poster and it was sort of evoking the fun of those cliffhanger types of stories and that was part of what they wanted to do. Again, I hate to use the word fun because it's a, it's about an unbelievably sad situation. But no, I, th- I think they did a lot of things beautifully and um, I'm grateful that they did. I just, uh, you know, in hindsight, you can kind of see what the flaws were. And those flaws got carried through the rest of the phenomenon, which is now, you know, exploded into billions of podcasts. And <laughs> yeah, which, you know, takes those same like troublesome tropes and into your own yeah. success yeah uh so i hate this word but what do you think is the best way to kind of acknowledge and appreciate the legacy of serials for a season that's such a i i don't know exactly but part of it has to do with understanding the strange power of the intimacy of the podcast and the fact that you know you can home in on whatever the podcast is about and the people within it and make this strange phenomenon out of it that people might end up getting obsessed with. <laughs> you know, I mean, that happened with S-Town. It happened with Missing Richard Sim. It happens with plenty of things. And it's it can kind of turn into an invasion of privacy if 
people's lives. I mean, if you're making entertainment slash information out of uh, people's pain, you, you need to be very aware of what you're doing and very careful about what you're doing. This is not a conversation that can be resolved in, in half an hour to 25 minutes. <laughs> but I want to thank you so much for like just kind of sitting with me on this and, and helping, me, helping me unpack this. Oh, my pleasure. I, I suspect this is an unsatisfying episode for my producers to cut but <laughs> <laughs> we didn't even say shrimp sale at the crab crib <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> servant pod is written and hosted by me nick kwa you can check out more episodes at alias.com slash pod the show is produced by Andreas Wahey, James Trout, and John Prati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servinopod is a production of LA Studios. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.